Welcome to episode 70 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Jason Rodriguez, CEO at Z-Prime. Residing in Austin, Z-Prime is a research, media, and events agency with a focus on energy. Based on the creative direction of their associates, Z-Prime produces Influential Research, the Energy Thought Summit, ETS, and premium branding experiences that challenge the status quo. When it comes to research, they don't just produce tables and charts. They deliver opportunity-focused, actionable insight that is both engaging and accessible. Their business insight solutions incorporate a wide variety of research tools, including in-depth executive interviews, surveys, and in-house database research with granular analysis as well as a cache of ad hoc solutions. Combined, ETS and Z-Prime represent digital and physical solutions that share stories of real people and engage ideas and products influencing the grand energy transition. I love that. The grand energy transition. And speaking of difficult challenges, COVID-19 infections are on the rise many places in the world. So please be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank the people who are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. As CEO and co-founder of Z-Prime, Jason leads the strategy and the direction of the company's market research, events, and advisory work in the clean tech and energy industry. He helps energy companies enter and succeed in complex and intensely competitive global markets. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Jason Rodriguez, CEO of Z-Prime. Jason, welcome to The Climate Champions. Great to be here with you, Lee. Thanks for having me on. So I'm a big fan of everything you produce, by the way. I read and I watch and I attend. And you were in climate change early. You got involved with this pretty early. Can you talk about what your motivating moment was when you decided that you wanted to be part of the fight? The first thing that came to mind is actually back in eighth grade, they asked us to do like a personal where we're at and where we see the future. So I look back at that often as, as I was growing up. And one of the sections in there asks about the future. And the way I describe it back then, it talks about pollution. And it talks about the world needs to address pollution. And I think I describe it as a garbage can. Uh, this would have been like 1992. So it's always been a part of kind of who I am just in terms of knowing that there's an issue to address it. But fast forward into the career and where we are today, I'd say it had to be about five years in terms of really getting serious and being part of the solution and bringing ideas to the table and people to the table who can solve this challenge. And a lot of that had to do back when the hurricane season and some of the storms that hit here in Texas, where it made it much more real to myself 
and to the industry we're working on, and we could be a part of the solution. So I, I put that there. I'd also look back into Hurricane Katrina when that happened. I was in grad school at the time at the University of South Florida, and I remember that moment and starting to listen listen much more closely to the conversation that was being had and what were the things that were causing that, and then going into work in the energy industry and seeing the rise of, of smart grid electrification and hearing about how the utilities and the industry were describing how they can be a part of the change, but how difficult that was going to be of trying to unravel a hundred and something years of infrastructure and how that's been done. And so after hearing that back in 2013, 14, a lot of the work we were doing here is, okay, we can bring the right people to the table to actually solve those problems. So that was a long way of saying it was a lot of different moments in time that I think really contributed to us and myself wanting to be personally invested in building solutions that help address climate change. What are your personal drivers? What gets you up in the morning personally to fight the good fight? Well, that starts with my kids. First of all, I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and an eight-month-old. And if you look at the timing, right, my daughter was born in 2014. Taking it back to the story written back when I was in eighth grade is like, these were talks about back then, and, and I don't think they've ever been addressed. So I want to be able to tell them a small piece of the work that I've done has really helped kind of solve some of these issues and, and help build coalitions and partnerships that can actually bring change. And I think that's the beauty of, of the industry we work in, is that you have a lot of folks willing to do that. So that gets me excited, the passion that people like yourself and others across the U.S. and across the globe are so vested in doing this because it's the right thing to do. That really gets me excited, having conversations and listening to people's passions. And obviously, they've, they've made a career out of these things as well. So that makes sense, too. But that makes me want to go out there and try to be a little bit better, not just in the actions you take every day and how you live your life, but also in the types of things we can do as a business and how we can bring these partnerships together. So enthusiasm and then my kids. So you obviously are very invested, but there are many people that still don't believe the facts or don't believe there is human-caused climate change going on. Mm -hmm. How do you convince people like that that they should change their perspective? It's very difficult. It has become very politicized in the reality that we're living in today. So I've actually found it very difficult to find folks who are dug into their positions. Unless you can bring those people together in some type of forum where you know what the end goal is, we're, we're, we're going to have two diverse conversations here because we want to find common ground where our commonalities align, right? Whether it's education, healthcare, climate, all these things are intertwined today. So a lot of what we're trying to do is let people see that and understand how these things are all interrelated. At the end of the day, a lot of our end goals are probably the same, what we want for our children, for our work, or for our industries. And so if we can make people see those commonalities, we think they can look at the climate change problem a little bit differently. The things being hashed out in social media and forums play into some of our worst instincts are very difficult to do. So in-depth conversations like this play a big role in doing that. But it is a double-edged sword sometimes with the pace of media where it's more about getting the information out there versus getting the right information out there. I think that's the challenge. But if we can find ways to leverage that, that's how you can really move the needle in finding, first, setting some type of common goal that we all agree on. And number two, then providing a solution where there is some type of win-win there. That, that's how I found it. And then there's just some of the common sense things that play into this. 
being someone who kind of values like health and fitness, the earth is a living organism. Just like your body, if you just eat sweets or fatty foods all day, you, there is something going to give. But a lot of people do. They just eat sweets yeah. and fatty foods. And then you get 40, 50, 60, and then the doctor starts saying something. You kind of ignore it until you, know, you start feeling a pain here and there. And then you start trying to figure out, well, what action? So in that stage, you're trying to react to it. In a lot of ways, I think that we're seeing the earth through that same lens. I think to me, that just makes common sense. No living organism can take that much wear and tear on it without having some type of adverse effect. And that's probably the common sense argument I make. And that's how I explain it to my kids a little bit, too. You said something very intriguing there. And it's going to sound like I'm very naive. And I guess I am. Because I use social media... And I'm putting podcasts in that bucket to have conversations about issues. I don't think about it as a way to split people up. I mean, I do. Obviously, I'm not living in a cocoon. <laughs> I understand social media is definitely splitting people up. It's just that I really haven't analyzed that it's doing it on climate change too, but I guess it is. I guess it is. Yeah, it is. It sometimes can fall into the political spectrum of right wing, left wing where one's a conspiracy theorist and one's a socialist, and then it all gets crumpled together. And so when you're buried into those positions, it becomes very hard to convince someone to see why this is real and why we need to take these actions to do it. Why, if we don't act now, there are certain consequences to it. The pandemic in itself, in a lot of ways, has also amplified this, this lens of how you look at climate change. But even going there in a conversation without having it like this, it becomes very hard to do that in a social kind of snippet format where if someone saying that the pandemic is one of the outcomes of problems, if you do the research and follow the science and listen to what's being talked about, this is part of this bigger global issue. But it's really hard to make that argument with someone over Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I take it offline. I don't argue on yeah. Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that's naive. I think there's a lot of good work, and a lot of positive that comes out of it, too. It's like everyone gets into their own little whirlpool of beliefs, and sometimes it becomes hard to shake out of them. I recently interviewed Gerald Kootenay, and he started something called Hashtag Climate Brawl. And so when he's on Twitter and he sees somebody saying something about climate change, denying it, instead of fighting that battle alone, he puts that hashtag on the thread so he basically is calling in all the people that are part of that movement <laughs> I like to that. help with the facts. Yeah, I was pretty yeah. excited when I talked to him and understood about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it, like facts. But even then it becomes a, a challenge because then you get the sharing of links. But, but yeah, facts at the end of the day should win the day. But you mix emotion into it and politics and it becomes very difficult. You mentioned the pandemic. How has the pandemic affected what you do and how you do it? From a business perspective, it's obviously changed in that we were a business that did a lot of physical events and thought leadership, and that was a core part of our business. So it's allowed us actually to really focus in on what we're really good at and find new ways to deliver that in a new format. And it comes down to having engaging conversations that are meaningful. And if you can do that, then I think the pandemic has really allowed us to really focus in on that core competency as a business. That's a work in progress, but it's also been a good pivot that we've had to make that I think as any business should be diversified. And it really allowed us to, to focus there. I think from how we live and how you operate as a family, it, obviously it's been <laughs> life-changing in terms of being able to peer through 
some windows that I never had a chance to view, especially with regards to your kids' education. Even though you're taking them to school every day, you bring that inside the home with three other little ones. You see it very differently. Uh, you see what motivates your kids, and you also see where they kind of need some more help and where you can actually be a part of their growth a little bit more. That's been a great, great experience for sure, but it's definitely a challenge there. But as far as impacting what we do, I would say from the messaging and the work we're doing, I think it's definitely heightened our sense of urgency to talk about climate change much more directly. It goes back to the conversation we just had. I think a lot of us in this space of clean technology, I mean, we had this conversation in January, should we be very upfront with our positions or should we try to take a little bit more neutral ground? But the pandemic has said, no, we have to really stand our ground and be a, a voice for this change and be a voice for information, the right information for the facts. And I think that's definitely pivotal in terms of before that, I think our work spoke for itself, but we were hesitant to be so direct in terms of addressing some of the naysayers out there, particularly being Texas-based, where you're just like Houston and oil country and everything that happens is built around that. That's how it can become very, I wouldn't say controversial, but there's jobs on the line. There's a lot of folks in West Texas who make their living off the oil and gas industry. How to have that conversation there, but we knew we could have it productively, especially if you can point those economic benefits out of addressing it in the right way and having a long-term solution to addressing climate change. Listening to what you just said, what I heard is this. We as a society knew that a pandemic could happen, but we didn't say very much about it or take a lot of proactive actions because they would be inconvenient. They'd be costly. We'd have to dedicate a lot of our thought to something that we didn't know exactly when it would happen or even if it would happen. And that climate change is in the same boat. And now you want to make sure, and so do I, by the way, that we are proactive. And I would add, and I'm, I'm not trying to take their banner, but with Black Lives Matter, it's something that has been there for as long as I've been alive, certainly, and my parents have been alive. And yet many of us, and I'm guilty, accepted it as it was. We said it's getting a little better and that's okay. And I think that is also part of we can't just sit back anymore with the problems we have. We have to start to address it. Oh, I 100% agree. I 100% agree. I think you've described it perfectly. I think we all were accepting incremental change. Understanding a handful of folks understood that times like these were coming, but the pandemic unleashed a lot of the, the inefficiencies or the ills that I think we knew were there. But yeah, I 100% agree. Can you talk about what Z Prime does and what you do in a little bit more detail? Sure. So Z Prime was born actually out of the first recession. And some of your early work, right, of the Obama stimulus when the smart grid stimulus was launched. We started in 2007 as a primary market research company, doing your traditional data analysis, market analyst coverage, doing forecasting for uh, several industries. But when the recession hit in 2007, 2008, there was not much going on. I think we, so myself and my partner actually moved back in with our parents right there because we wanted to try to make the business side of it work. But I guess the silver lining in that was we were doing work in smart grid prior, small projects. So we had some visibility of what could come next out of this. And then as we started listening to the debate back then with was President Obama, and I think it was John McCain, and he was talking about the smart grid on the campaign trail. So we had this research that we had done for a private company, 
And so what we decided to do is, hey, this, this could be the next big thing. And we put out a really one-page press release about it, just using some of the background we had gained from that research project. And that ended up getting picked up on several news wires. And then we had big companies calling us to say, hey, how can we learn more about this market? And then obviously, President Obama got elected and the full economic recovery package happened. And then when that stimulus hit, we just happened to be at the right place in the right time in a lot of ways with doing research in that space. And that has, fast forward today, led to all the different media and coverage, utility of the future, digital transformation. It's, it's just got all these different tentacles. That's how we got started. And so my background was in economics and market research, which was what Z Prime originally started as, and which we still do research and analysis and market coverage, but we've grown as the needs have grown. So Z Prime, what we do today is thought leadership across the critical infrastructure sectors, which is primarily utilities and cities that we're working with. And we produce media events and research in that space. So anything from surveying cities to utilities to consumers and a lot of our work centers around how we're going to use and engage technology uh, to really create more efficiencies within the energy system or how we use energy or some of the needs we're, we're kind of looking to expect from our cities and municipals. So that's a lot of what our work focus on lately and think we've definitely carved out a niche in terms of talking about digital transformation. And what's been great about that is you've seen that conversation make its way into how does this lead to an impact broader communities, especially with cities now having these climate action plans. So they have to work in conjunction across these different stakeholders and the electric utility has to be a key part of that to really help them meet their goals, whether it's through electrification, energy efficiency, and so the consumer and CNI, commercial industrial demand, plays a big role in these broader city or state goals. And fortunately, we've been a part of that journey and a lot of our work kind of reflects that. You talked a bit about your journey. Is there more you want to add from the earlier days? Sure, sure. So I started out as uh, yeah, working for an economic consulting firm, doing your what's today turned into there's a lot of buzzwords for advanced analytics ai whatever but back then it was just kind of economic modeling doing regression analysis and trying to understand differences and how people get paid wage differences labor force differences so it was a lot of demographic economic analysis and i even did some of that work in graduate school at university of south florida and then went on to work for verizon wireless kind of analyzing early days of kind of the mobile industry and then after grad school at the University of South Florida, that's where I went to work forecasting for several small municipal utilities in the Midwest. So that was my formal introduction to how the power sector worked. So what we were doing is forecasting the power portfolio for about 12 munis. The company would then go and purchase the power on behalf of these 12 or 13 utilities. And I was the, the forecaster, basically. That's still a big deal, forecasting correctly for utilities. Yeah, it's an art in a lot of yeah, ways. It's a little bit more complicated with renewables in the mix now. Yes. Can you talk about some setbacks that you've had? So the funny, the funny thing is, is the way Z Prime was started is, is when I was working for that company is because in grad school, I'd always done side projects to make some extra money. And I took some of those customers, ended up working with me out of grad school. And so I kept doing these side projects, even as I took that full-time job out of grad school. So long story short, I ended up getting fired from that job 
because I was doing too many things at once. And so that was a big setback. I was in Houston, probably a year out of grad school. But that also said at that time when the recession was hitting, I thought, well, might as well try to start a company. I didn't really know what it would be because I had these customers. I didn't have a company name. I thought I was just going to be solo uh, at that point. But that was definitely a difficult time in terms of, hey, you got to do something. Let's, let's make it happen quickly, too. I think through just running the business, like I said, as the recession kind of creeped in and making decisions, do I want to try to see this through and make it happen or just kind of go back into the labor force? Those were some difficult decisions back in 2008 and nine for sure, especially with getting very little revenue in any, any way you can. We were taking projects off Craigslist just to make ends meet. So that for sure. I think later on, more recent, probably over the last two or three years, probably decisions I've made that didn't work out were without going into specifics, I think those were definitely setbacks in terms of trying to grow a company, scale it in an industry that's very hard to do it in. A lot of lessons learned from failures, for sure, in terms of initiatives that you launch, trying to do too much at once, anything from learning how to work with employees. I think that's been the biggest growth of just letting great employees do their their work has been one of the biggest lessons I've learned in terms of there, but also a bit of setbacks in terms of when you felt like you could have done a little bit more for employees to flourish, and they couldn't. I think those have probably been more recent. So I made you talk about the setbacks. Please talk about some successes that you're proud of. Yeah, I think successes. I mean, Energy Thought Summit, I think you might have came and spoke at a few of the early days. I mean, that happened off of a win from, from our mutual friend, Andres Carvalho. At that point, we had only done one webinar and decided we wanted to try to get into a physical events game and a lot of setbacks, setbacks mixed with success because those early days in terms of working with hotels and getting like these fines for not meeting hotel blocks and things like that. <laughs> I've been there too. Not ordering enough food, ordering too much food, getting and learning how that whole pricing model works, which is a whole different animal. A lot of setbacks there, but at the end of the day, I think launching ETS and making it be one of the pinnacle looking glasses for the energy industry was was definitely one of our key successes. I think the second one would be just some of the young talent that we're helping develop now. I think that has been the one thing I've been very proud of, of bringing some younger voices to the table and allow them to, to use their strengths and the things they do really well to flourish and help become storytellers. Aaron Hardick on my team, who's, who's amazing. Aaron Otan as well, they do great work. And then Dylan Lockwood, very young folks who came in and have been able to create a voice in, in the industry. So seeing them do their work, I think their podcast is going on three years now, mixed with some of the engagements that we've been able to do through their work, looking at the industry from a different angle has been very exciting for me, and I, I would count that as some of our key successes. As you said, give them space and your employees will be great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Can you talk about your vision for the world, the country, with regards to climate change over the next 20, 30 years? That's a tough one. But yeah, I can put the analyst hat back on for, for a little <laughs> bit there. <laughs> but yeah, I'll take my best shot at it. I think what's great about the pandemic, I think it was definitely the line in the sand that how we've developed and measured progress and success has to be reimagined in a lot of ways. Because if it's just off GDP growth, number of buildings, how many people we raise them out of different income brackets, I'm not sure those outcomes and that type of pattern is sustainable, right? That the whole idea of mega cities growing and concentrated urban living is, is just going to be hard to do 
especially hopefully that the pandemic has shown us that that pure model of rapid growth just for the sake of of that one or two percent extra growth of GDP, I think the the indirect impacts of that are probably not the way to go. So in terms of what I would like to see with climate change is just reimagining city life and urban life and trying to have these hopefully some type of social social equity or social assets that we can develop to where there's there's incentives for for people that follow their passions and whether that's sustainable agriculture, building farms, building robots that help develop urban communities in a sustainable way, finding more ways to reduce waste and reuse it in, in innovative ways. The foundation of the future has to be built upon some way to really change the social fabric of the calculations we make that define kind of what success is and is not. The second part would be, I think, the financial system and how we finance green infrastructure or climate initiatives has to also be re-looked at before we get there because traditional VC model and even kind of public sector funding is really not built to change the way a society lives because we've just done it. It's hard enough to change electric infrastructure, as you know. So now you're trying to change society, how we've grown and done this for, for almost centuries. And I think a lot of that ties to you need a robust and a financial sector that really thinks differently to do that. So I see the way we monetize things, they could be social capital, hopefully in the future. So where if I'm volunteering my time to teach sustainable agriculture, I might not get paid in dollars, but maybe there's a different type of asset that's exchanged to build value upon. And if you can do that across the U.S. and across different world, you could do that. For as far as climate change, I think that has to be part of the solution. So just building for the sake of growth, population can grow. I think that's great but also the way we're defining livelihood and those metrics that governments use to, to do that. And even businesses, I think, have to be looked at very differently. And those have to change to get to that, that future 20, 30 years out where I wouldn't call it a utopia because I think there's going to always be some type of adverse effects to whatever we're trying to do, no matter how good our intentions are. I guess the one prediction I would put out there is the car society culture that the U.S. has built and thrived on, right, was probably one of the main backbones of the Industrial Revolution, probably goes away. And car sharing and how that works, I, I think you see a very different model. Even the whole concept of ownership, home ownership, probably changes a little bit as well. Uh, again, kind of going back how you develop value and assets. So if they could start building value out of college, so you're paying rent from 18 to 20-something, if I was making investments into the community and getting some type of equity from return, I think you could really look at value building very differently. It enables younger people to make choices they probably want to make that really mitigate the impacts of climate change earlier if you can give them a roadmap to kind of increase value. Because the traditional model, hey, I'm going to get a house, i got to save, save, save. It forces you into these lifestyles that probably are at least looking at Austin, right, it's a good example. The homelessness and the amount of cars on the road, it, it's hard. So less cars, a whole lot less. Hopefully you can go down to one car per household in 30 years, hopefully faster than that. But I, I, I do feel strongly like there, there are certain structural changes that need to be made. These are long fights that, that need to be had to get there. There were a couple of things you made me think about that I think are worth underscoring. You didn't use this term, but you made me think of the term balanced scorecard. Yeah. Sometime around the middle of my career, instead of only focusing on bottom line money, the leaders that I worked with started 
realizing that we couldn't just focus on the money. We also needed the people that worked at the company to be excited about their jobs. And that became part of a balanced scorecard that we developed. And having happy customers and building quality projects, all of these things started becoming things that we measured instead of just the bottom line. Now, there was a belief that it would help the bottom line with a company that was excited to get to work every day and excited customers. You could always justify it by saying, in the end, that will help the bottom line. I think part of what you were saying is that the country, maybe not just our country, but all countries, need that concept of a balanced scorecard. We measure other things except money. Yeah, 100% there. You also brought up the concept that it could be the end of the car economy. And you did not mention that during the pandemic, many people are finding that they can do much of what they used to travel for right from their own home. I'm not saying there won't be any travel, but I think there's a good chance a percentage of people will be driving a lot less and traveling a lot less because they've found they can leverage modern tools, modern technology tools, like the Zoom platform that we're using now. Yeah, 100% agree. The data we have out there, like 50% of those working from home want employers to implement long-term plans to work from home. And this is for folks who didn't have that option before. So I think employers are gonna listen. It's gonna have to be part of the package to get the new talent as well. And ironically, like bike sales are up, tent sales, you try to find these things in your store. And I think it just comes back to the family unit just discovering that's just as fun as some of these things we're doing. After this call, I'm going to be on a Zoom call with all the people in my family, on my side of the family, which we never did before. And now we do it every week we get together. That's awesome. Yeah. That's part of the, the balance there. But yeah, I, I agree. I brought up the pandemic affecting cars. How do you think the pandemic affects your vision of what the future looks like with regards to climate change? I'll bring it back to the start of the conversation in that I think it's just being a lot more purposeful out there. And it's funny, but I feel like a lot more voices are are willing to listen and know they need to be a, a major part of the solution and make major investments in there. So even as as tough as some of the economic pains are right now, you are seeing several governments across and major corporations really double down on efforts for clean tech, whether it's electrification, trying to be 100% renewable. So all those things are, are being purposeful with, with moving the needle on climate change. Just like pandemic has become a part of everyone's life across the globe, I think addressing climate change becomes part of the norm across peoples. And that's, that's exciting because it was really hard to have that conversation outside of that clean tech community sometimes when it becomes part of the general lexicon, I think it changes the narrative and you can have conversations that we couldn't have differently. You can have these demonstrations at shows, at community events, and you'll get that engagement that that I I don't think that door was as open prior to the pandemic. So in that case, it's an exciting time to be in this space and it really lends itself to this is the time and this is the moment for us to do something big. You do find some people that aren't wearing masks out there, (laughs) but the majority of people are either keeping their distance from other people or wearing masks with some understanding that they're protecting other people just in case they have it and don't know. And I think in the same way, you're going to find people that drive gas guzzlers for a long time to come, but at least it's out there. 
that people understand that they're making a choice and that it's not just a choice for themselves, but it's a societal choice by trying to damage the environment less. It's not just about yourself. Yeah, that's another silver lining I, I point to, especially the early days, right? Where the whole country was bought in on keeping everyone safe. Obviously right now, when, when we let up, right? The government let up, but there was for six weeks or two months, the country was bought in regardless if they believed it or not. And to me, I think it showed the better angels of us all. We were willing to make some really hard sacrifices for the greater good. And I think we should find hope in that for sure. At least I did. Yeah, hopefully the climate change sacrifices won't be as difficult for such a long period of consistent time of difficulty. Hopefully there'll be short bursts. What kind of car do I buy? How do I commute to work? Where do I yeah. live? Do I insulate my house? Those are easier choices to make than staying sheltered in place for a long period of time. Yeah. And I think that's for most of us converted in the room. That, that's what we're advocating for. And it shouldn't have to take this type of catastrophic event to force us into moving into that bold action. But I agree, those choices are much easier. <laughs> do you have any questions for me? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Especially on, on electrification. As I know, being California, working for SDG&E, you were part of that foundational work. You got to see a lot of that. To see where it's at now, like what has that been like? To see the hype. Especially like the Super Bowl, right? The Super Bowl <laughs> when, like, had everyone so pumped up about electric vehicles. You, you take it back to 2011, 12. These conversations have been had for such a long time. So what has that been like? When I used to present about the Nissan Leaf and the Volt soon coming out, <laughs> people in my own company were accusing me of talking science fiction. And when I talked to customers, they really thought it was science fiction. So yeah, I know what you mean. And that was maybe 2009, 2010, those conversations. So it's super exciting. It's wonderful. I think of the years I spent leading those efforts at SDG&E as my best years. I had a great team, great leadership, and we were focused on really making a difference in the world. It was fantastic. I love where we are today. I'm not going to get into the details because I don't want to advertise my own stuff on the podcast. Yeah. There are a couple of companies I've launched this year that have that as a focus, trying to move that ball forward more and faster. And I think we might have a chance. So I love looking at the beginning. I love looking at the middle. And I love trying to get us toward the end. Yeah. So my follow-up question to that, just on, on electrification for a little bit, using like some of the parallels of maybe like BlackBerry and you know, Apple, what, what I like to ask folks who follow this is, Will Tesla have four or five competitors out there in five to 10 years that we will recognize? <laughs> That's an impossible question. My brother bought stock in Tesla because he felt it would one day go to 1,000. He made a little bit of money on it, but when it came back down, I think he sold around five or 600. And now he's kicking himself because he would have had his wish already. Yeah. I'm a Tesla fan. I love the vehicles. I've been driving them for a while. Nothing like it. I drove the Leaf first. It was a good vehicle, but it didn't make you feel different like Tesla does. I think that they are way ahead. They are way ahead. I always find it confusing when I read about another truck that's come. Rivian, is that the name? Yeah, yeah. I'm always confused when I see the press on Rivian saying they're going to give Tesla a run for its money. Tesla has been doing this a long time. And people for many years, until recently, 
we're punishing their stock price. So what's the big deal that there's a threat to Tesla? They're 10 years behind. I think it's going to take a while for anybody to catch Tesla. That's my bottom line. Okay. I don't know how they're going to do it. Can you talk about that? I asked that because for the exact same reason you said, because I've seen how far they are ahead. And it's not just in design and engineering and and how cool the car is and the, the fans and how intense their fans are. The whole value chain of how you support an ecosystem of electric vehicles in itself, they have that. And they understand that. Yeah. All the big car makers, right, especially the U.S. ones, that infrastructure and those learnings are not there. It's not software. As difficult as software is, that steep learning curve is not there in terms of when you're dealing with physical systems and people across the country and developing that. My thought is I don't know how those key players in that EV market in 10 years I'm kind of like with you. I don't know who is their their main competitor. They, it's probably themselves, honestly. Elon Musk is their competitor. Yeah, 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 which which is a different story. But obviously, I, I would love to see those traditional brands be there. But like with technology, those traditional brands eventually died out. Remember, IBM, right, for example, owned that PC market. They're not in that game anymore. That's my thoughts on it. I would love to see some traditional guys get there, but I don't know if they can. I don't know if they can. I'm going to say one more thing on this topic, and that is that they are way ahead on self-driving. They have millions and millions and millions of miles with people actually taking their hands off the steering wheel. Where they have all that data, that's going to be hard to catch. I understand that Google's Waymo has also done a lot of work, but they're not a car company. They're going to try to sell that. Tesla has their own. It just seems like an incredible advantage. Yeah, that's my thoughts on it there. And I guess on the last, I I do think too that what's exciting there is younger folks are excited about electric vehicles. You've tapped into the cultural love that Americans have with cars because that's a real thing, especially here. You mentioned Texas and trucks, right? That's real. Like we love our trucks. (laughs) It's part of, oh, grandpa drove the Ford. I think that's everywhere across the country. Ford just announced a plug-in electric F-150, and next year or the year after, they'll have an F-150 that's fully electric. It'll be very interesting to see what happens to those F-150 owners now, whether they go that way or whether they go Cybertruck. Yeah. Let's see those Ford loyalists if they can turn, if they turn. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess to end on is that what that excites me is that you have this, this whole generation that's opting in very early on to solutions that that really help us be a part of the climate change battle that we've all been trying to advocate for a while now and say what they want about generation z like i I think they're they're not gonna wait (laughs) that's for sure they're not gonna wait they don't want to wait they're like why wait (laughs) i think they'll find a way to make it happen it may not be how we want it to unfold but it, it will it will happen On that note, I'm going to wrap this up, and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. Jason's career path, it was made learning about pollution in eighth grade. You saw hurricanes and thought, that's a rotten deal. But on the other hand, it made climate change real. You're into coalitions and partnerships and cleaner grids. And that's how you explain it 
to your kids. A lesson from the pandemic, the way the initial urgency went hill, apply it to climate change, no more incremental. It was the smart grid stimulus that helped Z Prime because you were in the right place at the right time. Pre-Z Prime, it was your job that was the last. Energy demand is what you'd forecast. It was a lesson you learned to appreciate. Your employees, if you give them space, they'll do great. In the future, in the vision that you see an end to the car economy. Losing a job, it's hard, that's true, but it brought out the best in you. Oh! <laughs> Lee, that was, you made, you made my month. Like that. <laughs> that was amazing. That was ridiculous. I'm sure the concept has been out there, but Jason and I really got excited over a balanced scorecard for the world's nations. While economics and power make the world go round, climate, healthcare, equity, education, biodiversity, Life, happiness, and expectancy, and other measures are becoming more clear and obvious factors to our continued success as a species. I thought it was a very interesting conversation. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Jason may have lost his job as a forecaster, taking on more than he could handle outside his job, but sometimes that's what it takes to fuel the risk-taker inside. Now, at another major crossroads, Jason is stepping it up again, being even more of a voice for the changes that are necessary. Stepping up to face a challenge, especially of the magnitude we are experiencing today, takes courage and boldness critical to mitigating climate change.